Hi, welcome to the Food in the Edge podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. Hi, I'm JP McMahon. And I'm Przemek Brosz. And welcome to the Food in the Edge podcast. Today, we'll be talking about cooking after COVID. how the pandemic changed things. So I suppose firstly, we all know, I suppose, how the pandemic has changed things broadly. I think in relation to our own industry, we're sitting in an ear as we speak, and we have been closed for a year and three months now. And we were due to open March the 31st last year and the pandemic happened. I think um, I was just traveling back from Toronto after the launch of the Irish cookbook and everything got cut short, came back, and then we closed Cava, closed Tartar. And I suppose initially it was the first lockdown anyway. I think it, while it was difficult, we probably didn't know what we were dealing with. And there was almost an element of fantasy, I think, about the first lockdown, baking with the kids, doing things that we haven't done because the restaurant was closed. We also opened up as takeaway both in cava and tartare again because we had i suppose we had more energy as the summer went in we opened up during the summer we had a good summer for two or three months then we went into lockdown again as the second time was a little more difficult we only did one takeaway from one business as again the viability of it was also conscious about that and then we went into our third lockdown in december and we're due to close i think christmas eve we had to close a day early in tartare one of our staff got COVID and all the other staff were close contacts. Therefore, we just didn't have a, a, an option to remain open. And we've been closed since then. Today is February the 24th and we probably will be, hopefully, fingers crossed, open in July. I think what has happened, I mean, the changes other than being closed, everyone has pivoted towards takeaway and some of it's viable, some of it's not viable. We did takeaway in Cava and it wasn't viable in the sense of trying to have a team of four and do what we do and the food being suitable for takeaway. We did a box scheme tartare at home last May. And again, it was okay. I mean, we did 15 or 20 boxes a night, but it's difficult particularly with the 5k limit, people are afraid, particularly this time around, to, to even get takeaway outside their 5k. So while some restaurants in Dublin, you can certainly access them, uh, there is an issue around that. So we haven't done, our, I suppose, our, our box again. Hopefully, if we get some sort of indication in April that there's some sort of outside dining or something like that, maybe then we will uh, start to look towards a box scheme in that. But this pivot towards takeaway, I think it'll be interesting to see how much of that stays after we reopen because there's a market there definitely for it. I mean, you could see Amsure doing a, a box, two Michelin star restaurant doing a takeaway box or a, a box at home for I think nearly 200 euro. Um, there's great demand, it sells out in a couple of seconds. So there is a market there for it. And I think that the restaurants and pubs and hotels have been closed so long now that you would wonder, uh, will some people say the habit will be broken and possibly they will be more homebound? It's just uh, an idea. I think also the online culture has grown gargantuanly. Uh, the only thing that we're doing in an ear is online cooking classes. And again, it's not something I would have thought of before doing online cooking classes because cooking is a very kind of physical thing. You do it what's in front of you. And uh, it's not something I've ever suggested to people that we do a cooking class online. In the past, I don't think it would have worked, but we've done so many cooking classes now with people all over the world. The last one we did was in San Diego, just one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two. We're starting a 10-week one now with, again, 
again about 20 people all over the world and also we're starting a kids one so it's not going to break the bank it'll bring in a bit of money to cover the overheads we do have our grants and that but I, I can see that that market remaining and I think that the likes of Zoom which I think no one really knew before this pandemic now is an everyday word and I think we might have a couple of Zooms every day with different people everywhere and I'm sure that will impact in our own industry the likes of different conferences that were in the past people would have traveled to be there in person and I think we'll see a lot more blended conferences between the physical and the virtual so it is something that I think is there to stay. I was wondering if you could say a few words about what's the government's approach towards the situation. Is it helping restaurants or not? Because, for example, in Poland, people just rebel and open restaurants because they have no money left. Yeah, no, no. Uh, like Ireland is probably fortunate where the grants that they're offering are, are, are helping places to stay afloat. I think it's working better for places that are smaller. Let's say the likes of our three restaurants, we get a grant to cover all of our overheads you know to keep so to remain closed we're not losing money so our rent is covered our electricity is covered under that our water whatever other overheads insurance and all that so it is i think the maximum grant you can get is five thousand euro as a business so while i think places outside Dublin, say smaller cities like Galway, probably Cork to a certain degree, the maximum you can get is 5,000. So we're fortunate in the sense that our rent is under a thousand euro a week in, in a near. But if your rent was 5,000 euro a week, then that's not going to be your only overhead. So I know there's a lot of restaurants in Dublin, there's a lot of hotels that are running out of money and they're running out of cash. And of course, the Restaurant Association of Ireland are constantly asking the government to update these. But as you say, if in Poland they're getting very little or nothing and in Ireland we're getting something I understand that the government can't give everything and the longer this goes on the more debt we accrue I'm also concerned about how much has to be paid back because again I don't think it's free money and if we're getting all this money what sort of tax is going to go up or what sort of VAT is going to go up and that's why I think we're still in lockdown now there's no change until April but there are parts of the country that are COVID free now there's like Kerry and Killarney I think are two places. So I do think it would be beneficial to try and open up aspects of the economy because if everyone is just sitting at home and their business is being paid to close, then that's that's just accruing a lot of debt. So there's also the PUP, which is 350 euro a week. It is not a lot of money. It's enough to survive. But at the same time, that really depends on how much your rent is. And I think, again, we're fortunate in Galway to have lower rents than Cork or Dublin. But in Dublin, that's not going to be enough to survive. And if you have a family of two or that. So, like, it is a fairly crude instrument because it's 350 euro for everyone and it doesn't depend on whether or not you have six children or that so it's helpful but again i think more can be done i think more subtlety could be added to the mix in the same way that we're just looking at the country as a whole at the moment we're looking at businesses as a whole working at the restaurant industry i think that other places need more finance bigger cities bigger rents and i also i think then that the difficulty then is when we go into recovery 
I think the smaller your business, the better chance you have of survival. The smaller your staff, because places that are very large and need a large operational staff, that means they need more capital to begin again. And with our three businesses, I'm hoping we'll do a phased reopening where we've done a couple of Saturdays in Tartar. We're hoping to open three days a week from next week uh, for March, maybe four in April. We might look at opening capital for takeaway in May, June, and we'll just try and do gradual because also I, I don't know where most of our staff are gone. I mean, our core staff, I know where they are, but we have a lot of our floor staff. I don't even know if they're still in Galway. So there will be a rush. And that's why I think that we really need four to eight weeks notice from the government. I think we'll get four, but really I think eight would be better. And I think now the fact that UK and other countries, Denmark, have maps going, roadmaps, it would be helpful. But unfortunately, we're not getting that at the moment. What do you think about this idea of COVID passports that I read government is considering? Like, I think it's a good idea. I mean, I, I think we, we need to get international travel back. I mean, Ireland, it's not self-sufficient as a country. It needs to export, it needs to import, it needs to bring people in. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think a COVID passport in Europe possibly will be less necessary because Europe, I think, will be able to uh, vaccinate people quicker. I think the difficulty is, is, is that there are places that don't even have a vaccination yet, a vaccine rather, and these places, given the, the global nature of the world, I'd be concerned about people flying over and they will have to do something. I mean, there is a massive issue. I don't understand the issue of hotel quarantine completely in the sense that New Zealand and Australia did it relatively quickly. And we have an ongoing debate and it's still maybe a couple of more weeks because of individual rights and civil liberties. But it seems to be contradictory to talk about people not being able to go more than their 5K. I mean, that's an infringement on civil liberty. So if they can infringe on those ones, I don't understand why they can't stop people flying in from Brazil, which is where some of the variants are coming from. And again, it's not about people's nation. It's about wherever the variants are coming from. But look, let's just hope, I think, that by the end of September 2021, that we'll be out of the, the woods, so to speak. But as they say, this could be uh, endemic, as one uh, doctor said, in the sense that it would be with us forever, like the flu, and we'll just have to get a jab every year. And if that's the case, well, that, that's not too bad. I think one of the overriding things for me, and I suppose that's what like what's happening at the moment, is that they talk about what's happening around COVID and you have the pandemic, of course, and then you have the, almost like a pandemic in the pandemic in terms of the variants. But then you also have the issue of people being at home for an extended period and kids not being at school. So you have a lot of issues with, uh, I think, mental and physical health. And I'd be very concerned about them going forward because I think there will be a divide in society once we come out of this because some people are going to come out with an awful lot of money and some people are going to come out with nothing and particularly tech or pharmaceutical if you work in those companies you and I know people who do they're saving money they're saving money because there's nothing they're open making money. they're making money absolutely I mean if you look at Amazon they're making more money than ever uh, LinkedIn all these large companies particularly if you do something online and so I do think it's going to create a two-tier system and hopefully the government will play a factor in that. I think going forward into the future, one of my worries is is that, that and this this uh, was, was um, spoken by someone in the entertainment industry recently, that the fact that the government can now see 
and this is a very cynical viewpoint, but the fact that the government can now see that the entertainment industry is disposable in the fact that you don't need it to run an economy, uh, it does contribute to it, but it stopped and, and society went on. The hospitality industry, like I would be concerned about, particularly the arts, the grants that the arts get to survive. Will they be cut back or will they say, well, okay, we don't have enough money for our health system because our health system is always in deficit. Maybe we'll take some of the money from arts and culture. And that's not a very holistic view, but I would be worried about it in some countries where they, if they can see that, well, do you know what? Look, theaters haven't been open, restaurants haven't been open, people are still all right. They have Netflix, they can just sit at home and watch it. Maybe we'll start channeling money into into different elements. And I'm sure that's gonna happen in some countries. And I would be I would be worried about the arts and also the tourist industry. Because the tourist industry is heavily funded in terms of telling people about whatever place with Fulch Ireland uh, or Tourism Ireland, telling people to come to Galway, come to Ireland. That's all funded through government money. So I could see budgets being cut, particularly if we owe so much money, um, whatever billions we owe after we come out of this, like that's probably going to be the only way. So I do think the effects of COVID will probably be as long as the effects of the um, crash in 2008. And it might be 10 years just working through stuff. And that's why I think small businesses will be better. I think businesses with an element of online or if you can pivot to do something online and keep that element with your business, I think that's the best way forward. And because I think it's not just going to be open the door and people are going to come in. I also think one of the biggest changes and how the pandemic has changed things is that it's kind of pushed or accelerated the move towards more casual dining and takeaway. And like that was happening anyway, because more chefs are being trained. There's the skill set in the industry is larger. More chefs are going to train in Michelin star restaurants and then they leave. Uh, not all these chefs can open up fine dining Michelin star restaurants. There's just not enough demand. So what they generally do is open up gastropubs, casual dining, they put it into a concept. But I think that has been accelerated because I think a lot of places that had no worry about anything that were tourist destinations now have no planes to get there, you know? And a lot of these places are going to are going to suffer. And I do think that the places at the top of the chain, whether it's the two or the three Michelin uh, that are that are very remote, I think they're going to suffer because they're gonna take the longest for people to get back to them. And that's why I suppose the model that we have in Anir might need to change. I mean, our model in the past has been 70 or 80% tourists. I mean, possibly 90% tourists, maybe like 60 or 7% Americans. And that model, if um, flights don't start again next year, like that will be into a third year. So we then will have to re we'll have to reconsider, you know, and I think that Galway has a population of 80,000 people that won't support a restaurant like Anir. It's just not enough. You need people traveling. Now, maybe the domestic market will fill that in. We'll see if we open up during the summer and we see how many people come from Dublin and what the appetite is. But for me, particularly in the younger population, I think that they want a more casual, experiential feel to something. And possibly that is going to change. If you look at like either side of an ear, you have Bowtown and Hansenberger. Bowtown, I think have said to me that they are busier than they were before the pandemic. So now they're busier and that is a model that they couldn't have foreseen, you know? And so I think that will grow, but hopefully the ideas that come from an ear, like 
whether it's ethics or looking at good produce, hopefully they will filter down into these places. And then you will have takeaway places that will have a very strong mission statement or a very strong philosophy. And that's what I hope will come out of the pandemic. So obviously we had to cancel Food on the Edge last year. What's going to happen now? What's the plan? So yeah, Food on the Edge is an international symposium. So of course we had to decide, I think quite early, I think we decided in July last year that we wouldn't be doing the event in October. So we decided to do an ebook, and it was a pro, it was a, it was an idea I had in the past of a collection of emails or letters to a young chef about the industry. And there's, there's examples. I think Daniel Ballou has letters to a young chef and also so uh, Rani Mariah Rilke had letters to a young poet. So these were the two examples. So we started this book and it turned into what is now Lessons from Lockdown Cooking After COVID. And I have it in front of me. It's about, I don't know, 300 pages. 350-something pages. And we did it as an ebook. It started small. We emailed all the past participants about sending a letter to, to the industry or to a young chef about what was happening now and what the future may look like and then we suppose we started to think about how could we expand the idea of food in the edge into other realms so we started to invite other people people who had been involved in food in the edge maybe as a producer people who were involved as a journalist winemakers so the expanded industry and also people who possibly hadn't come to food in the edge who were in the industry in ireland maybe they could give a voice to it or they could come at it from a different angle so i think it's 121 contributors it is for the next month so until the end of March it will be available for free on our website you just subscribe to our newsletter and then you will get it we are working on a second edition that will be on Google Books that will cost somewhere between five and ten euro there'll be like a nominal fee the irony is that you can't put a free book on Google because you need to pay Google to host it uh, so what we do is we we learned that we were actually just gonna put it up on Google and then we realized it had to had to cost something so what we'll do is we'll probably donate we'll see how much it all costs to get up there and then we'll um, donate the remaining surplus to one of our um, one of our charities because I still want the book to be as accessible as possible so like it really did uh, for me there was some great letters or great emails like Aidan McGee's email to the industry the young chef about being up in Donegal as a boy Ibru Demir who is a Turkish chef who was feeding uh, migrants on the Syrian border like a lot of them put things into perspective I mean the pandemic restaurants being closed we are still touch wood have our houses and our health and she's talking about the pandemic being just another thing on top of what she's trying to do which is feed a million people and train people so that like for me that was one of the interesting letters some of them were really hopeful i mean uh, nathan outlaw who had to pivot he closed his two michelin star restaurant reopened it as a more casual experience liam tomland who's an irish chef in south africa and south africa has just had such a rocky ride i mean i don't know if they still have the ban but you couldn't buy alcohol that just goes to show you how much i enjoy a glass of wine but i just couldn't imagine i could take the restaurant being closed but if you couldn't buy wine I think then I would lose my mind. Uh, but so at least... Not only you, I can assure yeah, you. At least we have the shops open. But like, so I just think there was, it's a great perspective on things. Other ones that I'm looking at, say Mark Best and Alan Jenkins talked about the Great Reset. Now I know the Great Reset is some crazy conspiracy theory, but like a, a small reset of the industry. And I think that what Mark is saying is that I think a lot of the bullshit that's there in the industry, I hope 
hope a lot of that will dissolve because there won't be anything there to support it. And as Alan Jenkins has said that the idea of this archetypal celebrity chef traveling around the world showcasing their brilliance i think will a lot of that will disperse and i think as alan says now we'll be looking at more local ethnic communities for inspiration and i think that will certainly change the way that we see things and i think it's i think we had been trying to do something similar with food in the edge in terms of the speakers that we invited it's like of course we have to invite people that are well known and who are who i suppose do have a certain celebrity about them but i was also very conscious of trying to bring people from other places that uh, could possibly tell us something about their own community um, I think other, like, I'm just looking down through the list. I think some of them were quite funny. I mean, even though I don't know if they were meant to be. Jonathan Tam, who is uh, head chef of a restaurant that closed, Relay, and whether it closed because of the pandemic or because of other things, it did close during the pandemic and it is gone now, which is a very unfortunate thing. Jonathan wrote a recipe for a service. So he, the things that you need for a good service. So like the ingredients include people and music. And, and it was really nice to think about the service in that because again, sometimes you get preoccupied in the industry and you think about food being the only thing that that is there but like everything plays into that and whether it's music or the chairs you sit on or the, the whole theater of the restaurant i think for me that's what that brought back and bobeck as well talked about the i suppose the day that we got so used to of going in and doing what we do and then perhaps the kind of a little bit of melancholy or from missing that day when you write about the whole day and just the simple things about sitting down to eat and then going back to service and all of these things but again look the book is there there is emails from so many different people from different aspects of the industry and as i said we do we will have a second edition coming out the likes of say claire smith and anna ross for whatever reasons couldn't contribute to the first one because of our deadline and so they have given us a letter now so there will be an expanded edition and hopefully we're looking at possibly crowdfunding a hardback copy possibly like under 500 copies to print and then just to get people to pay for them beforehand so we don't have the the printing cost so we'll probably do something like that but look it was a good project and as as we were talking about before i think projects are the only thing that keep you going at the moment and that is nice you know because i think that a lot of the things that we possibly forget to do or our pastimes you know and whether that for me that's writing or photography or painting or you never get to do these things in normal life because you're working five days a week and you're always going to work and you're always then you're tired and you get home so it, that has been nice and i think that one of the benefits or the positive things that have come out of COVID is probably spending more time with my kids as like a real father and i put that in brackets real father because of course you are the father because you donated your sperm to their production but the fact of spending time with them and then actually baking with them and particularly now they're at home and you're supposed to be homeschooling them and i'm actually terrible at homeschooling we just don't do any maths or anything like that and i just think the best thing to do is just cook with them and just have a bit of crack and that they are expert at TikTok and making videos and editing actually my eight-year-old daughter showed me how to edit how to put five videos together and edit them together. She showed me the app and said, this is the one I use. It's called CapCut or something like that. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And she was like, you can put music over it and you can like do this. So I was like, wow, that's cool. So we make a few videos, bake and uh, have a bit of fun. And and that's, that's a really good thing. So look, uh, every cloud has its silver lining. It is true to say that. And I think that we, well, I suppose we all know people who have had COVID and thankfully, 
I don't know anyone who has died from COVID, so that's still a good thing. Um, but I've known plenty of people who've had it. So I think going forward, we should have, I mean, I hope a slightly better society. But then one could argue that these things always go around in circles. And you could be look at the roaring 20s after the World War One and the Spanish influenza. I think history will tell and we could, we'll probably all be joyful and run back to the pubs and to the concerts and to everything. But again, I think the divisions that have been sowed with COVID have really exacerbated places, like you said, in terms of Poland and no funding, like in the States, there's like that, it's literally tearing places apart. We're lucky in Ireland that we have some sort of funding system. As much as, as broken as it is, you still get 350 euro into your bank account and you can pay your rent, you buy your stuff. Like we have a, like a mortgage moratorium on our house. So look, that's all right. So, but there is a lot of places where uh, this is not happening. And that was one of the points of the book, I think, was whatever email you read from the book, it gives you a perspective from that person wherever they are. So whether they're in Africa, Asia, America, Europe, Australia, you just see a different side of things. And even talking to someone in, in the Netherlands yesterday, it's weird how it, with the pandemic, you get caught up in your own local or national bubble, or perhaps for you, you're, you're in Ireland and Poland, you kind of see what's going on. Uh, I didn't realize that the Netherlands has a curfew. The restaurants haven't been open since October. There's a curfew, I think for nine o'clock. And Inga was telling me that the first three days of curfew there was like riots and looting and it's funny that I didn't even see that that's just like yeah I was like wow like I thought things were bad here with a couple of house parties and people drinking and she said it was for three days she said uh, you wouldn't go outside it was chaos it was and it was I, I just watched um, LA 92 uh, with the Rodney King riots and I was like oh my god so I think everything has it it's uh, positives and negatives and I think that doing the book it gave us a little bit of perspective on what COVID has done internationally. So what's going to happen this year? Are we going to run foot on the edge and how? Uh, well, I suppose, hopefully, fingers crossed, we're looking at October 2021 for our event. I don't know where it's going to be. I don't know if it'll be, I said the other day, virtual or what's what's the opposite of virtual? Uh, so or it'll be real. It doesn't or, exist yeah, anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. So we have a couple of plans and we're talking to our one of our major sponsors, Gather and Gather. So we've been talking to them and seeing that the idea or the ideas behind it is possibly doing a virtual, just a completely virtual event. So like Terroir in, in Canada, it's a similar event. It's going completely virtual, whether or not the place is opened up just because you you have to plan now. So we're going to make the decision by July, whether it will be a two day virtual event, it will be a blended event from a bit of mixture, or it will just be a one day event with people. So I don't think the latter one is going to happen because I there's think it's too early. This yeah, year. I think they're still talking about possibly the maximum of 50 people being allowed in a space. And even if it is 100, if you take away the crew, you might have 70. And I don't think running an event with 70 people is sustainable. So I do think that we're looking at possibly a blended one where we will have some speakers, possibly from Ireland and Europe, some people in the audience, and then most of the event will be online. The majority of the people who watch it will be online. The majority of the speakers will be speaking from other places. But the, the positive from that, and again, it is something that again, that would not have happened in the past. I think that, because I attended a, a two-day symposium 
recently on um, on theatre, on the archives and theatre, and they were actually saying that they had more uptake internationally than before because people who just couldn't afford to get there. So I do think that it's not all bad. The dynamic will change. And also for us, it costs a lot of money to bring someone from Australia or from Peru. And even now, with if we have a limited budget and we say, okay, let's bring one person from Australia, but let's have four more people from Australia to talk. And I think now that the fact that we've been in this pandemic for a year and a half, people are used to that now. They're used to just having a Zoom and talking to people. And I think hopefully we will keep that element going. And it'll probably help the event survive because as I said in the past, Food in the Age costs about 300,000 to put on. That's why we were looking at a one day event because that's 150,000, it's half the budget. It, it seems a little bit more doable in this environment. But if we were able to have a two day event with and have a lot of virtual speakers, then possibly we might have a model of an event going forward that we can sustain. I mean, the idea of Food in the Edge is all about bringing people to Ireland to showcase Ireland, but also for those people to talk to us about what they do. That still needs people to come to Ireland. It still needs planes, it still needs tourism. But look, I do think hopefully 2022 will be a better year. Or as someone said by mistake, they put 2023 and went, oh, sorry, I forgot about 2022. And I said, oh, I thought you were being serious. I thought you did mean 2023 and two years is enough. But look, we will see how it goes and what will happen. But I think that the spirit of Food and the Edge is still there through the ebook and through the platforms that we have. And you can imagine how, I wouldn't say how graced we are to have the internet and social media in an age in an age of a pandemic because if you look back at the Spanish influenza which was way more deadly I mean you've got like tens of millions of people dying and there was nothing else you know if you were quarantined there was nothing you could do now of course you didn't know about the all the things that we can do but still at least we have access to those things and I know there's countries that don't have access to these things so we have to um, count our lucky stars but look hopefully we will also continue with our podcast series so hopefully we we will look at and try and branch out and see how we can make that experience virtual and talk to people around the world and and I think in that way we will just keep on tipping away at things to make them better fingers crossed fingers crossed doubles crossed but as again thank you Shamak for listening to me and asking me the odd question and we will see you soon as I said the ebook is available for another month for free on our website foodintheedge.ie if you have any questions certainly send us a message on Twitter email us I think info at foodintheedge.ie we also have a Facebook page and Instagram so whatever channel you think of but do reach out if you're in the industry and you want to have a chat take care